So today I'm really excited because I'm going to have a conversation with the um, author of The Postnatal Depletion Cure, Dr. Oscar Cyrillac. Um, Oscar is a doctor of functional medicine with a particular interest in postnatal well-being. And when he first coined the phrase postnatal depletion, which I think I heard about in about 2015, it resonated so strongly with me. Um, having uh, been diagnosed myself with postnatal depression and knowing other people that had as well. Ah, when I heard that term, I thought, yep, that's actually what it is. It's depletion. It's a mum being completely depleted of the macro and micronutrients that she needs, physical, mental, emotional depletion um, at a time when she really needs to be supported. So I've been watching his work for a while and I'm very inspired by where is all going. Um, the other term that he really likes to use is this concept of matrescence, which I'm a massive fan of. This idea of becoming a mother and it's a journey to become a mother. It's over a period of time with lots of different neurological changes, biological changes, again, mental and emotional changes that take place. Not entirely dissimilar to that of adolescence. So um, they're just concepts that we don't hear talked about enough in my opinion. So I'm really excited today to have him here to have a conversation. Hi, Oscar, and thanks for joining me today and being open to have a chat. I really, I really appreciate you being here because there's lots of great things I'm sure you can share with the, the women that I work with. Um, thanks, Gabrielle, thanks for the invitation. It's always great to be part of uh, helping mothers. You know, we're both very involved in this idea of mother care, so yeah, I'm very happy to share. Yeah, great. And I do love that about the people who are working in this kind of space. Um, I, I kind of struggled to work out exactly when I came across the concept of postnatal depletion, which is a phrase that I believe you coined and has since been turned into um, this fantastic book, The Postnatal Depletion Cure, um, which I'll sort of link below and make sure everyone's got a copy of. But it's, it, you know, for I've been very passionate about this work from as soon as I heard about it. Um, and and so too has my husband and, and our kind of um, story in relation to all of this is, is ends with a lot of joy, but it also um, probably started with quite a lot of sadness for both of us in that um, my husband's first, well, so I'm, I'm a mum with five kids. I've got a 20 year old stepchild, an 18 year old stepchild, 18 year old biological child, 16 year old biological child. And we've together got a three year old or just about to turn three. And, um, my husband's first wife sadly passed away. She took her life um, when Jacko was um, only eight years old after su suffering very badly for a long time with depression. Yeah. Um, and I also was diagnosed with postnatal depression, more manifesting in anxiety after my second baby. And um, I recall, I was thinking about it last night and I recall going to, I was living in New Zealand at the time. It was like the perfect, um, storm, I guess. I, I'd moved to New Zealand. I didn't know anybody, didn't have any family support, had the second baby, 21 months after the first baby, and would go to the doctor saying I had gut pains and all sorts of things. And But at the same time, when I would be in the surgery, I was drawn to these pamphlets on postnatal depression, but kind of also a bit embarrassed and a bit ashamed about it. Right. So it felt medical, but it also felt, felt mental and emotional. And eventually I took a pamphlet into the doctor and said, I think this is what I've got, cried. And she... Um, supported me through then a, a journey towards getting better. Um, but 
when my husband and I blended families, we, um, I took some time to help with the blending of families. There was a lot of grief with his children. And um, I was lucky enough to have some time off to do that. But I also decided I was interested in nutrition. And so I just did a course at the, Inter uh, the Institute of Integrated Nutrition. And whilst doing that course, mm. my husband and I were sharing the information that I was coming across. And we were both like, this is, this is, it was, it's nutritional, this issue that he could identify that for his late wife, a lot of the issues she was suffering from were as a result of nutritional deficiencies. And for me, I was certainly like, this is why I went downhill um, after having a second baby. At this point in time, we didn't have indigo. And then I fell pregnant with Indy and we were both on high alert. You know, he'd had this terrible experience and was very traumatized by it i too was also like i don't want to go down that road again and with this newfound information around nutrition we felt very um i guess inspired to to do things differently this time and i came across your work the the postnatal depletion cure and the moment i read the word postnatal depletion i was like that's it yeah that is a hundred percent I like there's no questions asked that's it and then I showed my husband and he was like that's it like just even in the words it's so clear that there's this enormous correlation between postnatal depression and anxiety and postnatal depletion cure and so I guess I'd love to begin the conversation with you um trying to understand a little bit about your perspective on that and what you see as the correlation between postnatal depression and anxiety and postnatal depletion, as you've coined the phrase. Yeah, yeah, well, it's, um, they're very linked. Um, I think it's on the spectrum. Um, you know, and I had a very interesting experience myself just with starting a family and um, you know, I was lucky enough to have a very supportive uh, community in terms of the antenatal care, but not a whole lot as soon as the baby was born. And we had a two-week food roster, which was kind of beautiful, so people turned up with food for the first two weeks with each of our kids. And uh, and I was just, as a doctor and as a dad, I was kind of amazed going, wow, my, my partner was kind of like the centre of this of the whole thing during the pregnancy. And then no one was looking at her after the child was born. Everyone was looking at the child. And... Um, and I just sort of really noticed this pattern of fatigue, of cognitive dysfunction, of food sensitivities and allergies and the immune system not working the same as what it was. And um, I happened to be learning functional medicine. I just finished my GP training and I was learning functional medicine at that time. I was like, wow, there's something really unique going on here with mothers. There's something really exaggerated going on here with mothers. And mothers are not men obviously, and mothers are not maidens. Um, there's something very different going on with my mother. And so I kind of uh, dove deep into this whole world of you know, mother science and matrescence and looking at postnatal physiology. And unfortunately, it's a very shallow swimming pool in terms of the dive into that. And uh, I was just amazed at how little information there is out there around what's really going on for mothers especially from a biological point of view. Uh, I think the medical world has the definitions of postnatal totally incorrect. Mm. Um, and and that, that's a starting point. And so for physical issues, you know, it typically extends out to six, six weeks beyond the birth of a baby. 
what they call the puparium, but there's another six weeks, and that's where all of them, you know, if you have any physical issues postnatally, that's when they tend to kind of happen. And then psychological and mental health issues, um, you know, looking at DSM-5, uh, you, know, you have to, the anxiety, depression has to be within the first six months, but symptoms starting in the first four weeks. You know, ICD-10 kind of say, extends out genuinely the symptoms could have started in the first six weeks, not four weeks. Um, you know, a lot of that makes no sense to me. That makes well, no sense. Well, no, and again, so the framework's totally wrong. And there's a lot of weight in, in international bodies saying we should extend it out the whole year. But, and I'm like, whoa, whoa. I mean, that's not even the starting point. It needs to, um, no. So I'm putting the postnatal period to seven years beyond the birth of the baby. Thank you. Um, and you know, maybe it's going to be longer. I, I'm not too sure where, and maybe we're going to be calling it something other than postnatal depletion in the future. But you know, one of the things that's very clear to me, and we can just dig, dig a little bit into the science, because it's really interesting when you kind of look at what we have just learned in the last few years as, uh, as you know, in the world of sort of science and mothers, because this wasn't around when I first started looking at this. Um, and they're to do with uh, the upgrades that a mother gets during the pregnancy. And so we'll talk a little bit about those. I love the term matresses. Yeah, I love that. Becoming of a mother. Yeah. Um, and it's not, it doesn't happen at the birth of the baby, just like becoming an adult, adolescent, doesn't happen at the 18th birthday. But there's a symbolism around that time, but there's a transition leading up to that and then, and then afterwards and it's very much the same with mothers and I believe matrescence is more biologically active and more biologically significant than adolescence and we know adolescence takes several years yeah and at the end of it you hopefully have this beautiful adult but it's not a straight line there is turbulence and the adolescent has to get used to their new brain and the new identity and the, and the new hormonal sort of space. And, and, and we support adolescents through that, hopefully, um, and, and don't give them a hard time. Of, oh my goodness, you don't know how to be an adult. You're a bad adolescent. You know, we don't talk like that. No. We do talk like that with mothers. You know, we believe mothers should know what to do. You know, mothering is a learned skill. We really have to support mothers through that trend, biological and you know, psychological transition into motherhood. Um, and what's interesting, when you look back at the history of adolescence, no one believed in adolescence up until the first mention of it in terms of society was about 100 years ago um, in America, where they would try to, they had to put in legislation for an adolescent between 12 and 18, because these 12 year olds were going straight from school into the workplace and not adjusting and not coping. And so they had to kind of and for 30 years, there was a huge debate whether this was a real thing or not. I mean, I, I look at this stuff and go, this is crazy. We all know adolescents. You know, I can't imagine a world where people wouldn't be talking or, or understanding or supporting that transition. It's but just a given now. It's just, just absolutely part of, part of life. We know that they're going to transition during that phase. We know we have to support them. We know there are emotional changes, physical changes, neurological changes, and that they are going to be struggling with the adjustment during that phase. And, and even now, doesn't it go into um, emerging adults is the new phrase that I hear, particularly with 
situations where you've got young adults living at home. It's just not a straight line. It's not a straight line, and, and it's a turbulent time as well. And you're saying, look, the brain doesn't finish growing until 22, and, and we're kind of realising, well, there's a heap sort of going on. There are more brain changes that occur in a mother's brain during their pregnancy than occur in an adolescent's brain during their entire adolescence. But, right. Know, it's wow. And yeah. these changes occur with every pregnancy. We only go through adolescence once. A mother mm. matrescence every pregnancy. And if she even has a pregnancy up to 12 weeks and has a termination or an abortion, that still has a very significant impact on her brain and her hormonal system. Right. Um, that gives me goosebumps you saying that. It's, it's a cumulative effect yeah. that is like, and a lot of the mums I speak to when they've got their second child, and I know you talk about this in the book, but if you've got, you know, plenty of mums have that 18-month, 21-month mark between first and second, <laughs> and then you've got, which essentially means you've got a pregnancy, a year off, or a year off being pregnant, and you're back pregnant again. So you're probably breastfeeding. Yeah. There's just this continuum of all sorts of hormonal, physical, yeah. mental, emotional changes going on over the continuum of what could be five or more years. Exactly. And there's a form, I call it the marinade of hormones. The mother's marinated, the brain's marinated in these hormones during pregnancy and then with breastfeeding and, um, and then, you, know, you, you throw in sleep deprivation and all the... Uh, challenges of trying to be a mother in the 21st century um you know, i'm amazed more mothers don't fall apart really when you kind of look at the pressures and the um, the expectations and this you know, stupid idea around the super mum who can kind of do it all and doesn't need totally. help and, and you know, putting your hand up for help is a sign of weakness and all this just crazy you know conversation that's going on out there um in our society and this expectation to return to work really soon and to continue to, you know, the, the financial pressures. There's all of these kind of compounding factors. Yeah. So, so, so let's dig, dig into that because this is, you know, I call it the maiden to mother. Uh -huh. so a lot of mothers try to go back to being their maiden selves or there's an expectation uh -huh. to go back to their maiden selves. Uh -huh. uh, you know, we certainly tried to do that because it was like, yeah, we're, you know, we're going to be these kind of parents. We're not going to the baby's just going to adjust to our lifestyle, not the other way around. I mean, what, yeah, yeah. What a crazy idea, that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it's, and, and so just like an adult doesn't seriously try to go back to being a child, but they nurture their inner child, a mother shouldn't seriously try to go back to being a maiden, but she needs to nurture her inner maiden. And yeah, I like that. Yeah, it's a very, and when we really feel into that, it's a really profound idea and a profound thing that mothers are going through. So let's talk about some of these upgrades. So um, a mother's brain shrinks 5% during pregnancy, but it's not a shrinking as much as a remodeling. Yeah. So it's kind of like uh, this messy spaghetti of neurons. You know, some of them get removed that are kind of in the way and it just, everything gets way more organized. And so I talk about the mess of cables that you kind of see behind your computer and your house, all that kind of gets rearranged, looks tidier, but doesn't take up as much space. That's what's happening in the mother's brain. Um, some of the things that are happening, um, she, you know, she gets a major up hardware and software upgrade. The hardware upgrades include the smell and tasting. You get a massive amount of new neurons. Makes sense. 
explains yep. a lot of the sensitivity of smell and taste that mothers have. Yep. And biologically, it must be really important if you've got a baby to pick your foods correctly. Right. If mother gets sick, baby gets sick. Yep. Um, uh, the, the EQ, emotional quotient, goes up significantly. But her emotional intelligence, her social reckoning, her facial recognition, there's some really interesting things that get massively improved. Uh, her IQ goes up, despite what a lot of mothers tell me. Yes, when they take a mother into the lab where it's nice and dark, she only has to do one thing at a time. She's actually smarter than her maiden self. In the sleep-deprived world of overwhelm and doing seven things at once, which mothers are kind of having to do, it may feel like your IQ has taken a, <laughs> a massive nosedive, but it's just, it's more that a mother's brain doesn't do very well with overwhelm. Mm. And there's some interesting research around that, especially while she's getting used to her mother brain. Um, you know, probably one of the most profound things that happens during pregnancy um, is that she gets her stress response system upgraded. And what I mean by that is what happens during the pregnancy, the placenta literally goes in to the specific part of the hypothalamus, so the hormone response center of the brain, mm -hmm. puts a pause on it. And so the mother can't mount a specific type of stress response. If she did, she would reject the baby. Ah. So the placenta is kind of going, look, you don't react. We're going to do all the work. And then the placenta starts producing massive amounts of hormones, 200 right. different hormones. Um, estrogen goes up 30 times in the third trimester. It goes up a thousand times above baseline in the, in the days leading up to uh, pregnancy. Progesterone goes up 30 times, cortisol goes up 30, three times above baseline. Um, and if it wasn't for that calming effect from the placenta, you know, a mother would feel super stressed with that much cortisol in the system. But the cortisol is really important to help create the baby, mature the baby, um, mm. all these kind of massive roadworks, if you like, that are going on in, in her belly. And that needs the placenta organizing that. And it needs the the stress response part of mum's brain calmed down during that time. Mm. Um, what also happens is between the hypothalamus and the amygdala, so the amygdala is like the um, emotional response center of the brain. So yep. it's a little bit like in that movie Inside Out, where yeah. the five emotions are kind of looking over the landscape and you know, they're freaking out or not, and that's the amygdala. That's kind of our emotional response center. And between that and the hypothalamus, our stress you know, hormone and stress response center, all these oxytocin receptors are put in there that men don't have, that maidens don't have, mm -hmm. that last for at least two years. I think they're permanent, but scientists haven't looked beyond two years. And you probably get more of them with each pregnancy. Again, scientists haven't looked at multiple pregnancies because it's too confusing. So what's um, the implication of that? Well, yeah, yeah, so we're going to dig down into that. So oxytocin is not only the hormone of ch you know, childbirth, it's also the hormone of trust. Love. Of yeah. Love, connection. Mm -hmm. so a mother's stress response 
mechanism goes from the maiden and man response, which is, am I safe? Am yes. I okay? Does this make sense for me? To we. Yes. And so mothers literally feel, not in me, in we, and their stress response system has the, are we safe? Are we okay? Does this make sense for us? Us. And so many of my mothers you know, describe this heart-opening experience, you know, after the birth of a baby. Um, it's a very fragile time, and it can really blow out in terms of that we might be more than just me and the baby, which is the baby bubble. Literally, you know, it's a hormonally drive thing, the baby bubble. But that we might also include the family and the community. It might even include the world. Yes. So many mothers can't watch the news. You know, they're, they're really affected by relationships and friendships that aren't working, but they're kind of tolerating. They go back into the workplace. They feel like an alien. You know, a lot of my mothers are deeply affected by what's going on in the world at the moment in terms of climate change, the fires that are going on. The fires. I've, I've spoken to women this week, and, pe and the mums that I've spoken to are just actually a lot of women, but it, it, there's a feeling of a fire within of, like it's and it's there's more there's like this connectedness yeah. that I, I hear a lot of people kind of can't even articulate what's really going on for them but this deep deep connection and when you say the word are we okay that so resonates yeah. it's a big responsibility and the idea that we don't perform well if we're overwhelmed is so ironic because the number one word that i hear from mothers is I'm overwhelmed. Yeah, and we'll dig dig down more more into that. But this I, ability to go to feel in we, I believe, is yeah. as a man, I can think in we, but I can't really feel in we. You know, I've kind of, I've, you know, whereas a mother can actually feel we, and and so that's a superpower. But it's also a curse when you're mm. really struggling. Mm. If you can't just go, well, look. I can just think that's okay or think my way to a place where I'm um, okay with this, whatever's going on, when you've got this feeling, because we feel before we think. Mm. And if our feelings and our thoughts aren't in alignment, it creates something called dissonance, and that dissonance is very uh, corrosive to someone's sense of well-being, to their sense of self-worth, to their confidence, all these kind of things. And so you know, feelings have to be aligned with thoughts uh, and when feelings aren't aligned with thoughts it's, you know, someone is really driven to to transform that that's the whole drive a lot of postpartum rage i believe a lot of postpartum symptoms anxiety is the body trying to recalibrate and what is it trying to recalibrate well when the placenta is delivered the mother loses this hormone factory Mm. And so she goes into a very, very low hormonal state. And so low estrogen, low progesterone, what's meant to happen is that this oxytocin from skin-to-skin -skin contact and breastfeeding and prolactin from breastfeeding is meant to compensate for that very low hormonal state. And it can take four to six weeks for estrogen, progesterone and cortisol to start to normalize again. So if a mother isn't supported or if she feels you know, that 
things aren't going well and something that she's not able to breastfeed or she's having a problem with breastfeeding or there's been trauma around the birth or there's you know, the child's in, in hospital, all these things um, affect the ability of oxytocin prolactin to work. And so mothers in a very vulnerable state. So low hormones plus not having the, the benefits of these other hormones um, puts her in a very vulnerable state. And so, and what the worked out just very recently, I haven't written much about this in my book, but it can actually cause something called a circuit dysfunction in the mother's brain, mm. so-called neuroinflammation. Right. In a very specific part of the brain. And this is part of where the overwhelm comes from. Um, it's also part of where things like autoimmune disease, the postnatal depression is a neuroinflammatory disorder. It's right. not the same as maiden depression and it's not the same as the depression that men get. Now, How do we know that? What's the, what's, the what's the physiological difference? Well, because there is neuroinflammation in a certain part of the brain, when they, do, when they look at electrical scans of a mother's brain with depression, and scans of a maiden with depression, they don't look anything alike. There's some, something totally different going on. And parts of the brain that are affected are, that are affected in postpartum depression that aren't in, you know, um, uh, in depression before children are the limbic system, mm -hmm. which is about social connection. It's the frontal lobe goes cold, um, which is around cognitive processing. Mm -hmm. executive um, function a huge part of the brain that gets really electrical they're not even sure what that's about um in terms of but it doesn't happen in, in men having depression it doesn't happen in, in maidens having depression and so and there are inflammatory molecules that they can find that can define certain aspects of postpartum depression and again this doesn't happen in other parts of depression so it's almost like we've got the wrong word for it, it should be called postnatal neuroinflammatory disorder with depressive symptoms or with uh -huh. anxiety or with uh, obsessive compulsive disorder yet and significant fatigue yeah okay yeah yeah and, and, and so if, if we had a different word for it um then we might have a different approach to it um and a textbook came out oh we would oscar we would because here's the big line right i remember a very, very smart member of my family who, sh who is well-educated saying when I was depressed to either me or someone who definitely got back to me, what has she got to be depressed with? She's got a new baby, a beautiful home and a, a loving partner. So the idea and the stigma around actually coming out when you're, when you're supposed to be so blessed yeah. and say, I'm sad and unhappy to me, is a very different there is there is a stigma around saying that completely as opposed to i've got an inflammatory disorder yeah that's making me feel like this yeah, because a psychological disorder almost has the feeling like you've chosen it or you're not, not able to think your way out of it and, and this is not at all what's going on and um that's something i'll just a couple of things sharing with you around that um, one is that a textbook came out a month ago called Biomarkers of Postpartum Psychiatric Disorders. 
Right. Um, it's, it's very nerdy. I don't recommend it you know, unless you're kind of you know, working in the industry from a just, you know, I, no, I don't recommend my mother to get these kind of books to, to look at because it's, you know, it's very scientific. But yep. I've been following these research group in America for a while. And the fact that there is actually a textbook out now, I mean, it almost puts me to tears that it's like, wow, we're finally getting here. Yeah. Um, and this book has all the different inflammatory molecules, all where all the research is, and it just is, is hard proof that postpartum depression isn't like anything else. Postpartum anxiety isn't like anything else. OCD, postpartum psychosis, these are not like anything else in the world of psychiatry. And so, and you know, you're probably aware that the first ever approved drug for postpartum depression came out early this year in America, by the, no, approved by the FDA. So whenever antidepressants are used or anti-anxiety drugs are used off-label, not many mothers are told that when they're put on these things, um, because they're evaluated in men and women, but not in mothers necessarily. And lots of safety studies in mothers, so in breastfeeding or something, so it's not that it's it's necessarily risky, but it's not, that's not its primary use. And so this drug that came out in April, I believe, earlier this year, mm -hmm. wasn't an antidepressant, wasn't an anti-anxiety drug, it was a hormone. And it was a hormone that is made by the placenta. Right. In large amounts in the third trimester. And it works in the brain to switch off neuroinflammation. It doesn't manage it, it switches it off. So it's a profound, and when the first studies came out, now they had women with severe postpartum depression who couldn't look after themselves or get out of bed, they couldn't, you know, the high risk of self harm, these kind of things. Mm -hmm. They gave this drug as an infusion over 60 hours. And after 12 hours, all four mothers in the initial pilot study had got up, they were laughing, they were making food for themselves, and they were fixed. Not just not depressed, they were fixed. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, totally wow. Again, the drug industry is going to use and abuse this. It's very expensive yep. at the moment, $34,000 to less, and they're going to try to push it onto any mother with a tear, um, not, mm. not, not mothers with severe neuroinflammatory issues, who, who this medication should only be for. But wow, I mean, we've got a, one, we've got hormonal psychiatry. Two, we've got something that can actually fix a psychiatric disorder, not manage it. And three, it's a placental hormone that works on the specific switch in the brain that switches neuroinflammation off. It just happens that some antidepressants help increase the level of this hormone in the brain, and that's how they work. And is it true also that uh, um, some antidepressants are anti-inflammatory anyway, and that's maybe why they work? Yeah, exactly. And so they work on the GABA system, they work on allopregnenolone increasing this hormone. They just have nothing to do with serotonin. And right. The mothers have to unfortunately put up with all the serotonin side effects whilst they're getting these anti anti-neuro-inflammatory. Yeah. yeah, right. Um, and you know, Sorry, did you want to say something more there? Oh, no, but it's, it's again, I'm not against antidepressants at all. I'm not saying they do incredible sort of things, but they have to be 
prescribed in the context of managing a mother's neuroinflammation, not just you're depressed, you're scoring, you know, so you know, this much on your Edinburgh postnatal depression scale, and away you go. And well, also, I guess we need to take a more holistic approach that it, it might it might suffice to do one, or might help with one part, maybe it'll help you bring back to a, I guess, a level where you can start to address other things like your nutrition, like exercise, like going back and being interested and sort of brings you back to that midpoint. But we need to ensure that our mothers are supported in all manner of ways yeah. to be able to, to get back to a, a good functioning you know, just a happy and enjoyable life, I guess, where okay. they feel like they're contributing and they're, they're enjoying the process, I guess. Yeah, I mean, to enjoy, not endure. And, and essentially yeah. what needs to happen is mothers need to uh, recalibrate. They need to get their whole systems back to kind of zero and reset. And this is why so many old cultures have this four to six weeks of deep rest mm -hmm. mothers. And I believe this is a hormone recovery time. It's not a nice cultural nice to have that, that, that have no yeah. biological basis you know this is a hormone recovery time what's interesting when you have a look at you know, traditional chinese medicine if you have a look at ayurvedic medicine from india all these things describe postnatal depletion in a very neuroinflammatory kind of way and, and and their treatments are around this deep rest deep support and specific nutrients specific macronutrients and specific herbs that essentially you're trying to restore this neuroinflammatory sort of issue so for me post neural depletion is a neuroinflammatory disorder yep it's a syndrome it's not a disease um, but it's a syndrome that is hallmarked by either a mother being pre-depleted before pregnancy yep and or having a very stressful pregnancy and, and the stress can you know it doesn't have to be emotional stress it can be lack of nutrient stress, it can be busyness mm -hmm. stress, it can be part you know, relationship stress, it can be not supported mm -hmm. in the workplace kind of stress. You know, um, and financial then, stress, yeah. Yeah, financial stress. I mean, the world is just full of stress. Yeah. Um, and, and then, and or postnatal stress. And that can also be birth trauma stress, it can be lack of sleep stress, you know, difficulty breastfeeding stress, it can be change of life identity and who am I now stress, which is and, a and, thing for mothers. Yeah, and also, Oscar, that whole point of, and I now thinking, are we okay? Because yeah. the moment you start thinking, are we okay? And you look around the world just a little bit, we're not. We're not so a, you're going to be triggered, aren't you? The moment you start looking around and go, oh, this is, you know, this, we're going to hell in a hell, you know, a handbasket, whatever they say. Yeah. So I, all, I also think about, um, some of the women that I work with, and some of this is making sense. I've um, been doing some study with Dr. Sarah McKay, who is a neuroscientist. Yeah, I've got and her book, The Woman's Brain. Fantastic. The Woman's Brain, yeah, she's great. And I was thinking about something she was speaking about a couple of weeks ago, which was in relation to our stress response and that idea of fight, flight, freeze, or I think it's fawn is that sort of fourth one where you kind of just acquiesce to everything. Yeah. And she was saying that the, the three of fight, uh, flight, freeze, or fawn um, are actually different to fight. And the difference in fight is that our brain lights up in social connection. So although it's a stress response, it's a connective stress response versus a disconnective stress response. 
And if I think about that in relation to the women I work with mm. and the fights that they might begin to have with their partners or the, um, the relationship issues that start to pop up, yeah. I can see that and I can personally relate to that with my own husband that the, the arguments or whatever are actually a bid for connection after feeling overwhelmed as opposed to withdraw and I'll be okay on my own. It's kind of like, I'm going to kind of have a fight because I need to connect right now. Yeah. And that was real light bulb moment for me in regards to mothers who are often left in their homes alone for long periods of time with children and infants feeling lonely, feeling disconnected and overwhelmed and then fighting with the one person they're trying to connect with. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. And it's almost like, the mother needs that oxytocin to help calm calm down this neuroinflammation because that's the one thing that does. And so there is a desperate need to kind of connect and, and get that oxytocin happening. Um, the but because of the we factor, um, it changes the dynamics of conversation of resolution mm. uh, and. Unfortunately, men don't often get that. You know, I, I, it took me a long time to even understand, well, there, there, this is a different playing field now. It's not like we were talking before kids. You know, there's, there's a, this is a totally different playing field. And mm. many men, uh, there's many other caregivers, that's not always the father, um, uh, you know, are under-resourced in that department because they're not too sure of how to be supportive. Mm. Um, they want to be, but there's just yeah. not. And I don't think sometimes mums don't know how to be, how to be, request the support that they need. They're not quite sure what they need. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, and then men tend to take things very personally. You know, if you yell at a man, he's going to take it pretty personally most of the time. Whereas well, yeah, right. So he's not going to think. You've got two people, right? The, the woman's going unbeknownst to her. I'm starting a fight here or I'm going to get, get into fight as a bid for connection. I'm not even conscious I'm doing it, but yeah. really ultimately what I'm trying to do is connect. And my husband or my partner, whomever is going, well, you're creating conflict. I'm going to go away from that. Yeah. So it has the complete opposite effect that we need and want. And no one really knows if it's not discussed what we need and want, which is that really deep loving connection so that the oxytocin can be produced to keep everything calm yeah. and reduce the inflammation, presumably. Yeah, yeah well, exactly. And the two worst things for a recovering mother are overwhelm and judgment. Mm, and and mm. judgment can be self-judgment or you know, other people sort of judging or our society judging or just that whole blanket of, you know, you're not a good enough mother if your child has a problem. I'm, I'm, I'm totally amazed at how we're in the 21st century and we don't, as a society, have a healthy discussion around motherhood, about mother care, about understanding how important it is to support mothers. And then if the child isn't sleeping well or isn't eating well or got reflux, I mean, the blame that gets thrown onto the mother a lot of the time, it's just, it's insane. And, and again, that's, so that judgment and overwhelm really perpetuate neuroinflammation. Mm -hmm. um, now, if you don't have enough oxytocin, that keeps things going. If you're not able to recover your nutrients and fish fat, and this is why I'm always talking about you know, DHA, fish oil, or algae oil for vegans to feed the brain 
fish fat that it's lost making the baby's brain. Um, and then uh, so much of the recovery postnatally either directly or indirectly helps with the neuroinflammation, helps to get nutrient levels back, helps to reset the nervous system response. So that's really important. If you're kind of you know, in a hyper-vigilant, hyper-anxious kind of mode, you're going to get very easily triggered into a stress response. Right. Now, and we're only meant to go into a stress response when we really need to. And then we need to go back to a relaxation response quickly afterwards. I see so many of my mother's, no, they're left in a stress response and they can't mm -hmm. access the, the relaxation response button. Right. Um, and they don't even know how to. And so, so, so a couple of things I really recommend people do. Yes, good. Uh, what, one, what are the things? Well, one, during pregnancy is learn how to relax. Uh -huh. Because most of us don't have a clue. And three o'clock in the morning when your baby is, isn't sleeping and you're having feeding problems and you haven't slept well in months, that's not the time to look, start the journey of learning how to relax. Mm -hmm. Totally strung out. That's a, that's a time when you use the tools that you've hopefully learned through your lifetime. And so, you know, I really prioritize this, you know, engaging in relaxation response and, and teaching that during pregnancy. Um, okay. And during pregnancy, just you know, minimize stress. Now, I see so many mothers running around, they're trying to get the baby's room perfect, they're trying to get all the stuff ready for this a magical kind of time, it doesn't matter. The child does not care if the room's painted or not, or if the, you know, the, you know, the crib's set up perfectly and you've got all the, the dangly things you know, <laughs> hanging from the ceiling. You know, the child just wants, you know, that newborn baby just wants their mother to be there. Yeah, and healthy. And healthy and present and relaxed. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what you know, they that, that, that kind of need. The other thing that I really, really... Uh, advocate for very strongly is like, yes, you've got a great birth plan, fine, put that away. Let's talk about your postnatal plan. Yes, yes, because the birth is only happening for like, well, I've had a birth that was an hour. The birth is, a, and, and then obviously longer ones as well, but the births are such a small portion of what happens. There's just such a big journey afterwards that's not really discussed until you get there. Well, no, and then you're fumbling through, you know, in, uh, through that. And, and so for me, the birth is not the finish line. It's the start line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost like the pregnancy is kind of a warm-up. Uh, and then you know, the whole motherhood thing starts at the birth. Mm -hmm. and, so, and so when you look at old cultures, you've got the time of deep relaxation. Mothers aren't allowed to do a whole lot. They're deep in special foods. They're, they're going to a deep time of support. Um, not, you know, there's no physical demands. You know, some cultures are not, you know, not allowed to leave the house, not allowed to even wash yourself. You're not allowed to do anything but apart from go to the toilet and, and feed the baby and connect with the baby and stay in that bubble for six weeks. It's very typical. Um, where is that in 21st century Western society? Now, it's almost the opposite, the badge of honor. Oh, how soon can you get back to work? I'm, I'm you know, an enlightened uh woman, you know, I'm not going to succumb to having to relax. You know, that's a very boy psychology type approach. And unfortunately, you know, I'll, I, I am as guilty of this kind of stuff as anyone else. Um, because that doesn't work for a mother's biology. 
okay so we're so we're advocating then for try and set yourself up before baby comes along to learn the various techniques and understand what you're going to need afterwards so you're well prepared but yeah. then when this when you hit the start line which is after bub comes out and you're both okay then begins a commitment to really deeply nourishing yourself and taking care of yourself and empowering those around you to say this is the support you need and we've got a time you know we're, we're trying to extend that as long as possible and it's no longer a badge of honor to be doing anything the badge of honor comes from lie down relax slowly do things as you need be be cared for have that beautiful so, so that badge of honor should be how well did you receive <laughs> yes yes and ask um, for help how well did you ask for help yes yeah exactly and so deep deep breath for four to six weeks empower the dad or the, or the other caregivers to implement the postnatal plan yes so and what a beautiful role for them oscar like i'm yeah. thinking you know my husband and i this without this equally third baby yeah. we did everything we we could but there were still definitely some missing points. And I think I actually can imagine that he would have enjoyed me saying, your job in all of this is to protect me for the next six weeks. You are the gatekeeper. No BS is allowed to come into my sphere from the teenage people we've got hanging around or, you know, yeah. and I, I can imagine him feeling really, I've got something really important to do had I given him that. Yeah. you know had we engaged him in that's your role because you know a lot of husbands feel or a lot of partners i should see say feel um what am i supposed to do here like i've done the load of washing i've washed up what else does she yeah. need but it's the protection isn't it it's a protection it's you know the gatekeeper that's fantastic we have a, a saying in our clinic you know no visitors only staff oh, i love it so for the first six weeks if anyone's coming over to have a look at the baby it's like well, they're there to do do work they may look at the baby as part of you know, what they're doing. So, you know, this is food rosters, this is cleaning. Sometimes not about the dad or the other caregiver doing all that because you know, they can. They need to be permissioned to, to you know, almost have a list of helpers and to be, and to be kind of negotiating and, and working the roster rather than them going, yeah, I, I can take the rubbish out, I can do the cook. No, that's, that's not what it's about either. The dad can be in the bubble as much as possible. Yes. People yes. love helping and being given direction. Um, but gatekeeping. Yeah, but the gatekeeping. And it's not the mother trying to implement the plan. So I see this happen a lot too, where the mother's going, oh, the food roster, no one's coming to that tomorrow. So I've got to get <laughs> That's just else. another job. And, and they're on the phone kind of reads like, uh, no, that ideally would be the dad doing, you know, and, and the, the food's just turning up that, no, food roster yes. time, and the mother wasn't even aware that someone had to cancel. And, and, yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, she's and not taking that stress on. Yeah, yeah. okay. All right, so I'm hearing these are really good tips. And then I guess my question, because I'm, I'm conscious of the time, but my, my question then would be, if you're kind of getting, you, you're doing well, you and your partner are doing well at this, you've got your preparation stage, you've hit the ground running, you've got your gatekeeper model, you're doing your rest and you're nurturing yourself and the baby. What are... Um, and, and we know that there's going to be macronutrients and micronutrients and rebuilding and repair and all of the things that need to take happen, take place. Yeah. What, and I think there's plenty of research out there about the kind of food that can be supportive to mums and yeah. that can be accessed. But I guess, what would you say, Oscar, are the couple of signs that you're wanting partner to look out for or mum to look out for that might be the indicators 
I need to come and see someone like Dr. Sarah Lack. I need to go back to a nutritionist. I need to get blood work done because some, there are a couple of little signs that are happening that are indicating I'm perhaps on a downward spiral. Yeah, that, that's a great question. It has, it has to do a lot with kind of the overwhelm. So mothers who worry excessively, yeah, so it's, you know, nature's design is that mothers are very concerned, but they shouldn't be worrying all the time. Okay. So when a mother's kind, and that's part of the neuroinflammation, just worry, worry, oh my goodness, what happens if, what happens if, what happens if, you know, this constant kind of dialogue. Uh-huh. Um, that's, you know, it, that's kind of the, the mother upgrade being too active. Yeah. So it's you know, called the worry train um, and the hypervigilance. Sleep is also a really critical part because mother's often really tired. So mm -hmm. mother has problems getting to sleep or they're waking frequently that isn't baby related. That's a real sign that something's not good. Okay. Um, I think postpartum rage. So this kind of dissonance that's happening in there and short fuse going into kind of hyper emotion. Uh -huh. So uh, rage is a very easy emotional state to see. You know, some of the other emotional states that mothers suffer with you know, can be hard to kind of see from the outside. So anxiety is one of those things that sometimes it's actually quite hard to see if someone's anxious or not because it's yes. inside. Yes. Um, uh, so it's any of these responses, It's what I'm hearing from you is it's any kind of emotional response that seems to be heightened or pervasive, as in repetitive, and so it might not be unusual to maybe have a moment where you yeah, react right. and then you go, okay, that happened. And why did that happen? And can I have some insight around it versus it's happening and I can't keep getting to sleep or I keep waking up or I keep being sad or I keep being angry or I keep worrying about the baby. If those, you or your partner are seeing those sort of things, they're indicators that the, there might be some more inflammatory issues going on. And then the, the next step is to address those inflammation issues yeah. at the and root it, cause. And it doesn't have to be seeing a doctor. I mean, it can be you know, seeing anyone involved with mother care, but there's lots of ways you can help support your inflammation. But it's, um, and we're designed for stress on, stress off, stress on, stress off. And so when the mother can't engage her stress off relaxation response part of the nervous system or can't recalibrate, this is where the worry is because then you get this accumulation. It's almost like the sleep debt that you get not sleeping well every night. The uh -huh. nervous system also needs to reset. So if the nervous system can't get back to that zero state, it's kind of staying in this hyper alerts. And so and it's almost like when the mother should be relaxing or is relaxing and she's not relaxed, she's still you know, very agitated, overthinking, now, so I call it hammock time when she's in the hammock. Again, it's just a metaphor. When she's in the hammock and she's stressed, that's a sign that things aren't going well. Right. Okay. Beautiful. I so, think that there's so some... Mothers should be loving that little bit of time that they're getting to kind of relax. And so when you can't get out of that loop... Um, that's a sign. Yeah. I think that's, that gives us a lot of food for thought and... Um, Honestly, I could talk to you for a lot longer. I've got a whole list of things that I, <laughs> I think, you know, relate particularly to mothers as they get older and the children get older and things that aren't being discussed and addressed. Um, but this has been a huge help. And I have absolutely no doubt that the women that I share it with will be really grateful and will resonate a lot with them. 
So I really appreciate your time today, Oscar. Thank you so much. And I'm really grateful for the work you're doing in the world.